At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The following podcast is a production of the Factual Data Creations Facility. Welcome to the OFNT Podcast, episode 162, which I'm calling, For All You Do, This Bud Might Not Be For You. If you even noticed last week, I had some audio issues. I used a different piece of software than I normally use. I remastered the episode and replaced the original with it, so hopefully you weren't affected by this boondoggle. So as they say, on with the show. As usual, I have tech news first up. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has joined NPR and PBS in abandoning social media platform Twitter. These actions come after Twitter labeled the news organizations government-affiliated or government-funded. Just in case you didn't know, PBS, NPR, and especially the CBC are somewhat government-funded. PBS and NPR get between 1 and 14% of their funding from taxpayer money depending on how you tabulate it, while the CBC gets a whopping 70% of its operating budget from Canadian taxpayer money. In the case of PBS and NPR, those organizations' hissy fits thrown while announcing their exit from Twitter has caused many to suggest and demand that no U.S. taxpayer money be given to them at all. I kind of agree with this. If you didn't know, NPR uses Neumann U87 microphones that go for at least $3,000 a piece. You know, if they're that strapped for cash, they can always sell those mics and use Shure SM7B mics, which sell for less than a quarter of that price. Sheesh. Update. Twitter has decided to delete the government-funded or affiliated tags from all news services accounts on the platform. Now, I don't know if this action will facilitate the CBC, PBS, or NPR coming back to Twitter. Well, it was fun while it lasted. U.S. car manufacturer General Motors has dropped Apple's CarPlay and Android Auto from current and future electronic vehicles. Or should I say electric-powered vehicles? Instead, GM has teamed up with Google to develop their own proprietary system. I guess the preview of Apple's future CarPlay, shown last year, spooked the company. The preview showed Apple's CarPlay taking over all the displays of an electric vehicle. GM and other car manufacturers rightfully don't want to hand over that control to Apple. I remember the preview looking pretty cool, though. We'll just have to wait and see how this goes. If Apple doesn't develop their own car, we'll probably never see that version of CarPlay on any vehicle. 
you know, I don't think I'll ever buy a fully electric car from anybody for various reasons. My next vehicle will most likely be a hybrid. Apple has introduced high-yield savings accounts in companionship to the company's credit card. Currently, you can earn 4.5% interest using an Apple savings account, which beats the pants off any commercial bank that I know of. You can create and deposit into an Apple savings account using your iPhone. I haven't checked this out yet, but hey, color me interested. Continuing with Apple... Rumors are flying hot and heavy around the old intertubes about the next version of iOS, which is number 17. Supposedly, this version will allow users to sideload apps, which is a big shift for the conservative money-making company named after one of my favorite fruits. This move appears to be the result of pressure from the European Union. I guess you can call this good news for those users who live within the EU, because the latest rumor, while agreeing that sideloading is indeed coming to iOS 17, believe it will only be coming to countries within the European Union. While using Android and Symbian operating systems back in what some people would recognize as the day, I would take advantage of sideloading of apps. Why? Well, because I could. And also because that was the only way to get certain apps on your phone back then, as app stores were still in their infancy. With many software firms crying about having to pay fees for selling the awares on the app stores, this will be good news, at least in the EU. I'm surprised that these complainers just don't use progressive web apps. These types of apps behave exactly like regular apps, but have the advantage of being able to be updated in real time without the need for user intervention. And of course, they can be provided and sold directly to the consumer without having to go through any app store. In fact, the original iPhone was supposed to use progressive web apps, but the bean counters saw an opportunity to make some bank with a centralized app store. Do you remember a slick social media app that was a serious rival to Twitter named Parler? No. Well, I do. I really enjoyed using it. You know, I was a verified user on Parler. I didn't have to be famous or pay someone off within Parler to get verified either. All I had to do was provide a copy of my driver's license and a valid email address. Like another social media platform that didn't tow that line, Gab, Parler was cut off from first the app stores and then the internet itself. Well, Gab decided to create its own ecosystem separate from the mainstream, while Parler made the required changes demanded by that mainstream. You know, even though it came back on the app stores, Parler never regained its popularity and faded into the background. Well, Parler has recently went dark because it's been sold to a company named Starboard. Starboard is owned by Ryan Coyne, founder of Working Warrior Foundation, a charity that assists military veterans in finding jobs. Time will tell if Parler rises from the proverbial ashes. Now here's something that could shake up the world of search engines on the Android mobile operating system. ArsTechnica.com is reporting that Samsung, the largest phone manufacturer in the world, whose phones run Android, is considering switching to rival search engine Bing with ChatGPT and dumping Google Search on its phones. If this takes place, it would be a major win for Bing, who, of course, is owned by arch-rival Microsoft. What next? Could we see the relaunch of Windows Phone in the future? What? No! 
Yeah, I'm still kind of mad at the Big G for helping to kill what was the best mobile operating system ever built, at least in my opinion. And speaking of Google, whose security team must use a sieve as its emblem, the highly anticipated Pixel Fold has leaked. The Pixel Fold will be Google's entry into the foldable phone form factor. Say that three times fast. The YouTube channel, Front Page Tech, also known as FPT, broke the story. I'll run down the basics of the Pixel Fold here. If you want a more detailed rundown, just head over to FPT or do an internet search. The price of the Fold will be $1,799. While that undercuts rivals' prices, I still think this is just a little too much for the mainstream buyer. But then again, I'm just a guy with a microphone. What do I know? The phone will be announced on the 26th of April, with pre-orders live for the Google Store only on that date. Pre-orders for all other sales points, like carriers for example, will start on the 30th of May. The hardware itself will start shipping on June 27th. Now, the specs kind of. The front display will measure 5.8 inches, while the inner display will measure 7.6 inches, with both rocking a 120Hz refresh rate. The phone will have a 72-hour battery life. Well, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see if that's true. And run on Google's own Tensor chip, in this case, the Tensor T2. The rear camera will be 48 megapixels, while its supporting wide-angle and telephoto lenses will come in at 10 megapixels. The front camera will be a 9.5 megapixel, and the inner screen lens will be rated at 8 megapixels. Jeez, that's a lot of lenses. The phone will feature face unlock and also have user ID integrated into the power button. This form factor, once reasonably priced, will be great for those whose phone will also be their main computing device, in my opinion. For oldsters like myself, whose phone usage is diminishing along with their mobility, this form factor won't matter much and will not justify such a high price. What do you think? Will you be interested in the Pixel Fold? Tech I'm using. Well, there's still not much happening here in the OFNT household. My son recently scored a Samsung 2TB external solid-state Evo hard drive for $120 from Amazon. That's an unbelievable price. I remember wanting a no-name 1TB drive, which cost over $200 fairly recently. This drive will definitely be going on my Amazon wish list for Father's Day. Hint, hint, hint. My only tech purchase lately has been a cheap TDS water tester I got for 9 bucks on Amazon. This pen-sized device lets you see how impure your tap and other sources of water are. Well, it turns out my tap water isn't that bad after all. Now, I still use a Brita filter system for my drinking water, though, in order to save money by not having to buy bottled water. The other benefit is not having to recycle those bottles. Other than that... The only other thing I have is some complaints regarding my Aura Smart Ring. The software is always prompting me to verify naps I haven't taken, while failing to recognize naps I've actually taken. Yeah, yeah, I know. First world problems. I know. Entertainment news in more than usual this week. HBO Max, the Warner Discovery-owned streaming entertainment service, will be renamed Max going forward. Many in the industry were surprised that the company would ditch the iconic home box office HBO branding, which has served them well for many years. 
The new service, along with its companion app, will combine home box office, Cinemax, and all the Discovery Channel properties into one app. I dropped the HBO Max service myself because, like most streaming services these days, Stars, Showtimes, and others, for example, there just wasn't much I wanted to watch on them. Right now, I only have MGM Plus and Showtime. MGM Plus is only 6 bucks per month, while Showtime is rolled into my Paramount Plus account for the same $6 per month cost. Speaking of which, my Paramount Plus subscription combined with Showtime is now commercial-free. And that service costs a heck of a lot less than what I was paying for HBO Max. Over the years, I was a fan of Leo Laporte's This Week in Tech show and network. Well, I recently unsubscribed to Twitch's YouTube channel and deleted the paid-for app I used to watch the network using my Apple TV or iPad. I did this because of politics leaking into many of the shows on the network lately. The Mac Weekly Show has that walrus-faced public radio employee who always manages to bring his left-wing beliefs into his bloviations. Another show features a frequent neck-bearded guest who displays an ACAB hat prominently when he appears on the show. ACAB, or ACAB, stands for All Cops Are Bastards, by the way, and coming from a family of current and former law enforcement, I just don't appreciate that. The final straw came last Tuesday when the network show on security featured the host blasting certain political beliefs. You know, I'll watch the news media if I want to hear divisive political content. I don't want that sort of content while watching a supposed tech show, which airs on a supposed tech network. Well, that's just me, I guess. The I Guess liberal news website, BuzzFeed, announced that it's shutting down at the end of April and becoming part of the Huffington Post, which many media pundits have pointed out is also in danger of shutting down. 15% of the current BuzzFeed workforce will be laid off. BuzzFeed is most known for being the first to print the infamous Steele dossier. While some of the on the right of politics are celebrating the site's demise, I have no feelings either way as I never visited or paid any attention to BuzzFeed. I wasn't the site's demographic anyway. Well, it's time for a break. You may or may not hear an ad or two. See you on the other side. Podcast news this week. Here's some good news. Last week I was lamenting that the newsletter Podcast Business Journal, known as PPJ, was sold to the Pod News newsletter and that I wasn't a fan of Pod News' owner. That's a lot of Pod News is in there, isn't it? I also stated that in order to receive the PBJ newsletter, you had to subscribe to the Pod News newsletter. And that was something I didn't want to do for various reasons. Well, it turns out that you don't have to subscribe to Pod News. I've received the now weekly PBJ newsletter for the last couple of weeks now. Yay! And that's a good thing. Now for some what might turn out to be some not-so-good news. One of my favorite podcasts, in the horror genre anyway, the No Sleep Podcast, has joined the Audio Boom Network of Podcasts. I just hope the show doesn't change in quality or raise its subscription prices. And I hope the No Sleep Podcast stays independent in the future. I guess, as always, time will tell. And speaking of changing podcasts for the worse, Spotify is freeing its Gimlet-produced podcast from exclusivity 
making Gimlet produced shows free to be heard wherever you get your podcasts, as the hip people like to say. I complained in a previous episode about Spotify ruining the shows of the old podcast lineup when Spotify bought them a few years back, and though I never really listened to Gimlet produced shows, I'm sure they suffered the same fate. Long live the mighty RSS feed, I always say. In the past, I shared with you that I'd like to rid myself of all the analog technology I use to produce this and other podcasts. I would love to purchase a Rode Rodecaster Pro 2 interface, but I don't need all of its features and can't justify the unit's $700 price tag. Instead, I've had my eye on a Lewitt Connect 6 interface, which costs $300. The problem with the Lewitt is that there aren't many reviews for it anywhere, so I can't make a decision on whether it's worth me purchasing it. Last week, Rode announced a smaller version of the Rodecaster Pro interface called the Duo. Instead of the four microphone inputs and outputs, it has two. And instead of six sound pads, it has four. Other than those differences, the interfaces are quite similar. If the Rodecaster Pro Duo sold for around $300, it would be a, an automatic buy for me. But alas, the list price is rumored to be $500. Ouch. So I'll be waiting to see if that price comes down any time before making a final decision. I currently use the Hindenburg Digital Audio Workstation to record and edit this and other shows. Hindenburg was designed from the ground up for recording spoken word, while most other digital audio workstations were made for recording music. Hindenburg simplifies the recording procedure for podcasts by streamlining the user interface and providing just about all you need to record, edit, produce, and upload your show. Hindenburg was never cheap. I think I paid around $200 for my copy. Recently, Hindenburg has been beta testing version 2 of its software. In fact, I'm using the beta to record this very episode. Besides looking much better than the previous version, the software runs much faster and provides even more tools for your recording and editing needs. One of the biggest new features is the transcript editor. Hindenburg will automatically transcribe your audio to a file that you can later edit. Something along the lines of the Descript software. Well, on April 25th, the beta will expire and you'll have to upgrade to the new version. Well, I figured that with the promised discount for owning the previous version of Hindenburg, I'd be looking at around $200 for the upgrade. No, dear, that's wrong. Yeah, well, it'll cost me $300 oh. to upgrade, and that wouldn't even include the transcript feature, which you would have to obtain a subscription for. What? I also have the option to subscribe to Hindenburg for $100 per year, but would also still have to pay a separate subscription for the transcript feature. I'm not going to do any of that and will continue using the older version of Hindenburg, though it will no longer be supported going forward until I can find the replacement. Speaking of which, even though it won't be as convenient to use as Hindenburg and has kind of a steep learning curve, I'll probably go with Reaper for my digital audio workstation. Reaper costs just $60 and that's a lot less than the $300 plus subscription cost of the new Hindenburg. I'm very disappointed over this development, but what can you do? Apple's Logic Pro is another DAW I'm considering, which goes for about $200, but no subscriptions are added in and no need to purchase an updated version. This subscription model method being used these days is the worst, in my opinion. 
And finally, for the podcast section, as far as podcast listening apps go, Castmatic, which was once my favorite, has stagnated. No podcasting 2.0 enhancements are forthcoming for it, so I'm dropping the app. Pocket Cast, which became my favorite, though it too doesn't feature many podcasting 2.0 enhancements, raised its subscription price by about 50%, so I'm letting that one go also. The two apps left in my stable are Podverse and Podcast Guru. Podverse has the latest and greatest features, but is expensive, while Podcast Guru has a better UI and is slowly but surely implementing the Podcast 2.0 features, and it's cheaper than Podverse. I'll update you on which one I decide to keep in the future. The Rant Returns This rant will be the final time I talk about the so-called Bud Light controversy. As you probably know, for some reason, the marketing department over at the Bud Light brand of the Anheuser-Busch Brewery decided that in order to appeal to women and younger people in general, they would enlist the help of a former gay actor who's now a trans woman and activist who, in my opinion, has created the best grift ever to do so. Well... I don't know what they are teaching these days in those expensive and fancy lecture halls at universities such as Harvard, where the vice president of the Bud Light brand, along with Anheuser-Busch's CEO, earned their business degrees. But it would seem to be common sense to me that you should not alienate your main paying consumer base, which has been keeping your brand afloat by trying to appeal to a subset of a subset of a particular part of the population. I don't feel that trying to appeal to this subset is what alone caused this backlash. No, I, I feel that the general population has just had enough of that particular lifestyle and its agenda, which for some reason feels it's okay to reach down to minors, shove down their throats, along with this particular influencer. That's the real culprit here. The boiling point just happened to be reached when Bud Light decided to employ Dylan Mulvaney to represent the brand. It didn't help that the vice president of Bud Light, one Alyssa, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Heinersheed, had a video floating around the intertubes from a podcast interview she did in which she called the brand's current and now many former customers out of touch and fratty, whatever that means, while also reciting the inclusion and equity trope that seems to be the main point of education taken away from this country's universities by their graduates currently. If you were to watch the entire interview, not just the snippet that made and is still making the rounds, you'd also see that this woman has a life coach and is heavily influenced by this person. I gather that the elite have so much money and so little to spend it on that they enlist these life coaches. I guess being a life coach is just another great grift, I must say. Now remember, the product here, beer, is a plentiful, cheap commodity with plenty of competition, which makes it easier for the consumer to switch brands. Whether it was Ms. Heinrichshed's decision to recruit this Mulvaney character or not, she will be the fall person for this so far $9 billion market loss. But don't feel sorry for her, though. She lives in a $7.5 million apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which overlooks Central Park. Right around the corner from the once-dark tenement building my family inhabited for almost 100 years. 
which overlooked nothing but other once dingy and dank tenement buildings inhabited by fellow lower-class types. As for Dylan Mulvaney, if I was his her agent, I'd tell them that they've oversaturated their market and they're overexposed. I'd advise him her to lay low for a bit, then make a triumphant return because, let's face it, everybody loves a comeback story. In regards to the Bud Light brand, it will take a while, but it will come back. Sure, they'll probably have to change the iconic blue can and start a new, slow-moving advertising campaign, but you know what? They'll be okay. Hey, the music is playing, which signifies yet another episode of this podcast is over. Number 162 was a blast, wasn't it? I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I enjoyed making it for you. If you like what you heard, you can make a donation, please, using the link in the show notes. Any and all donations will be appreciated. You can always reach me at OFNTPodcast at gmail.com if you're so inclined. I'd enjoy hearing from you. Oh, if you'd like to hear my take on current events, give my other show, the Straight From The Desk Podcast, a listen. I'd appreciate that, too. Remember, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Hey, isn't there a beer to be boycotted? Why don't you stop by a Whole Foods and pick up some Carlsberg Pilsner like I did? And when you do, get off my lawn. Stay skeptical. I'm out. See ya.